Welcome to the audio channel of Dr. Sadaf. Preach Christ, teach the Bible, make disciples. Turn to hear a word from you. I have prepared, but I need your power. I have studied, but I need your strength. I am willing and I want to, but only you can make me able. Silently now I wait for thee. Ready, my Lord, thy will to see. Open mine eyes and illumine me. Amen. Let's all turn to Genesis 3, 6. And the text says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Now temptation is an old topic, and temptation has been preached to death. What I'm not going to do is tell you about the obvious. Because you could bring up here the most unholy, unrepentant person, and they'll tell you about temptation. They'll know what it looks like, they'll know what it feels like, and they can tell you about its consequences. But the most dangerous temptations are the ones you don't even know exist that happen each and every day and very, very craftily fly under the radar. So the first part of the series, we're going to break temptation down into its constituent parts. In the second part, we're going to learn about a blueprint to overcome and conquer temptation. And in dissecting temptation, we'll learn that what seems to be very, very complicated is actually working on some very, very basic core principles. Because in order to have the right product in defeating temptation, we must first start with the right idea. Because the idea always precedes the product. I'll make it very plain. My trainer, Matthew, is in peak physical condition. He used to be a wrestler. He was about to become a Navy SEAL before he changed his mind. Anything health-related, he has mastered. And the reason why he trains me is because he has an exceedingly high success rate. So if you want to get more bulky, if you want to run faster, if you need more cardiovascular endurance, Matt almost guaranteed will make that happen. And I say, Matt, how do you do this? How can you take people from all walks of life and predictably make them better. He says, Elijah, the whole health thing, people think is complicated. But if you just know very, very simple, basic ideas and master those ideas, you can then apply what you know and fix a multitude of health problems. So the first point. Objective, object, opportunity. 
objective, object, opportunity. So there are two flavors of objectives. And the objectives differ by who you're talking to, God or the deceiver. Now, the root word of temptation can mean enticement, but it can also mean to try or to prove adversity or trials, which therefore means how you experience temptation depends upon your perception principle. If you look in your back pocket and your ID says property of G-O-D, your temptation now serves a specific purpose where God is testing you for a specific reason. Case in point, James 1, 2 to 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So guess what? God will allow specific trials, temptations to happen, knowing the exact result it will have on you, and that result is always more positive in God's favor. The deceiver, on the other hand, plays by a different rule book. James 1, 13 to 15 says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. But he himself does not tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So the deceiver's objective is irrefutably and irrevocably always death. And your lust is always personal and specific. So the lust that I maybe have is very, very different than the lust someone else may have. This is how it works. Someone's individual lust desires an object. That lust and that object are bed together. Lust knocks the object on the shoulder and says, do you want to have a baby? The object always says yes. When the lust and the object conceive, the baby that is produced is sin. And when that sin grows up, that sin brings death. It's a predictable formula. And although the lust is personal, the penalty is always universal which means it doesn't matter if the temptation has a lowercase t or capital T, the result is always the same, death. Now the object comes in three flavors. The object of temptation. 1 John 2.16 For all that is in the world, the one, lust of the flesh, and two, lust of the eyes, and three, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The lust of the flesh always involves some form of a biological drive, the need for hunger, the need for food. But since God is relational, creating us, we are also relational. So the lust of the flesh can also involve relationships. 
the need for otherness, the need to feel loved. The lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life always involves comparison. Because the only way you could see something and want it more is if you have something else to compare it to. And the pride of life always functions on how you can be better than someone or something else. The root cause of both is always comparative in nature. The third part of temptation, opportunity. By and large, this is the most dangerous part of any temptation. Luke 4.13, when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him, Jesus, until an opportune time. This verse appears at the end of Jesus' temptation, which means when the devil was done, he didn't call in reinforcements. He didn't level up and get more power, drink some evil juice, and try again, and hit Jesus even harder than he did before. No, he waited until an opportune time. Because the devil is so crafty, he doesn't waste resources of, him, of his own. He waits until your defenses are as low as possible, and then he strikes. But guess what? God knows when are opportune times. The devil knows when are opportune times. But you don't know when those opportune times are, which means you have to put on your game face and be ready at all times. The attacks are always going to be calculated. Now, the root of the word opportune refers to time in a descriptive sense. Which means if you're a new believer, an opportune time may be the door of this church. It may be in this church. It may be when you leave church, on your way home, when you get home, and when you go to someone else's house for dinner. But if you're a mature believer, these opportunities may be very, very few and far between which means the way the deceiver is going to try and get you is going to be very, very crafty and subtle. And it's going to be so good, he may even use your God-given gifts against you to set you up. I'm going to give you an example. In 2 Samuel 11, we find King David. Now, David was a guy who always relied on the Lord. He was always inquiring of God. God, what should I do? God, what should I say? God, should I go or should I stay? But in 2 Samuel 11, David was on top of a building, and then he inquired about Bathsheba. And in that inquiry, ended up getting him to trouble, the woman of which he committed adultery with. And look at how it's also a, a perfect opportunity. At the time David was on that rooftop, the rest of his soldiers were at war. He, being a king, should have been with his soldiers. But he was in his home, Jerusalem, in the holiest city at that time in the world, in his own kingdom. 
which means he didn't even necessarily sin. He just dialed his righteousness down from 100 to 70. And instead of doing what he should have done, being with his soldiers, he was in a particular circumstance that gave the deceiver an opportunity to set him up. Which leads to my next point. The best temptation hides in plain sight. The best temptation hides in plain sight. Genesis 3, 1 to 6. Now the serpent was more crafty. The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. So the best temptation hides in plain sight. So let me ask everyone a question. We know the serpent was the devil because Revelation tells us so. But did Eve know the serpent was the devil? She didn't. Now that's not my own creative theological exploration. The Apostle Paul actually tells us that. 2 Corinthians 11.3, NIV. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's coming, serpent's cunning. Your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Sincere and pure devotion. Which means that in Eve's sincerity and her pure devotion, there was innocence. And the serpent had his own effectiveness because it concealed its true identity. And in that concealment, he was able to slip in to some place where there was innocence and strike. At this point in the conversation, Eve only knew what was good because she had yet to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Eve, being God's creation, was in the garden that God had made. It was actually on the seventh day. It was also God's day as well. And the serpent approached her speaking about God. His question was, indeed, has God said? Which means the serpent has the most power as a religious serpent. A serpent whose true identity you don't know, but comes in the name of Jesus, is actually much more dangerous than something which is very, very obvious. 
in fact, indeed has God said is a very, very strange way to start a conversation. It's even a strange topic for a first conversation. Now, whether or not there were prior conversations, not our point, at the end of the day, it was Eve who turned away and turned away from God, and the guilt was laid upon her. But the point is that Eve didn't even need to leave home or leave her place of comfort in order to be tempted. It came looking for her in the language that she was always speaking. So the first hidden secret of temptation is that source concealment always makes it much more desirable. I'm going to give you an example. The other day, I was very, very early for work, so I stopped at a local store to get some coffee. As I was walking to the car, a woman approached me, and somehow I just knew she was an evangelist. I just felt it. So I'll be honest. I said, I want to see what she has to say. So she came up to me, she greeted me, and she began her elevator pitch. And at first, since I knew she was an evangelist, and she confirmed that within the first few seconds, my defenses went down. Because I said she's a fellow sister in Christ. And I was very open to what she had to say. But then as she kept on talking, she was saying funny stuff. And I kind of, wait a minute. So then I had to stop her and I said, is Jesus God? She said no, immediately. Now she went from someone who I thought was a friend to someone who was my enemy. Because if you tell me Jesus is not God, we are playing on two different teams. And immediately my defenses went up. Because if you conceal your identity, you can slip in. Now just imagine any other person who had a sincere and pure devotion to God who has exposed someone like this. They could very subtly slip in, coming in her suit, talking about God to turn you away from God. Source concealment. And here's the second hidden secret. If the deceiver can make you think it's not his idea, but your idea, he can perform an inception on you. Watch this. The serpent didn't implant an idea in Eve's head with her knowledge. He actually set things up and invited Eve to come on in. And in that action, Eve fell under the delusion that in answering the question, indeed, has God said, she spawned an idea in her mind which she now thought was hers. And as a result, no one else gave it to her. And with that brilliant, quote-unquote, idea, it now altered everything she thought about God. Genesis 3, 6 says, The woman saw. 
which means Eve, after being asked the question, indeed, has God said, came to this conclusion herself. The serpent actually showed her a way that was different than what God had told her. The mental wheels began turning, and she reached a point where she said, you know what? You're probably right. And thinking this was her own idea, the idea now became so much less threatening. And the danger is that this all happened in Genesis chapter 3. God created the world in Genesis chapter 1 and began a relationship with Adam and Eve two chapters later. Which means everything which were to happen after this point in Eve's walk would be tainted by this inception. Who here has seen the movie Inception? So let's relate this Genesis 3. In Inception, you had a team of people who were trying to get a person to do a specific action. But in order to do that, they had to go into the person's dream and implant an idea. So when the person woke up, they would say, I have a great idea. And the team had to operate by stealth, because if they went into someone's minds and were discovered as foreign, the person would immediately reject them. So they had to fly under the radar, very, very subtly plant an idea, and make the person think it was their own. And that's what the serpent did. The serpent pretended to be speaking the same language as Eve, came in under the radar, and implanted a question. Did God really say that? And then walked away. He then did it on God's terms, in God's garden, speaking to God's creation. So once her mind got a hold of that idea, the woman now saw which is the second, second hidden secret of temptation, it's my idea. The bottom line is this. When the temptation is packaged in holiness, most people can't tell the difference. And now the last point. You don't start training on game day. You don't start training on game day. The bottom line is this. Jesus is the only person in the Bible to have gone up against the devil and have won. Which means you can't bring natural weapons to a supernatural fight. And Ephesians 6.12 tells us this. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Because if you try to defeat temptation by willpower, by reading secular books, or by thinking your way out of it, you're going to fail. So the question now is, how do we prepare? How ought we prepare for the big game when we can conquer temptation? Three different ways. 
in order to conquer the lust of the flesh, which is a biological need, we have to fast. Because the flesh doesn't like to suffer. Ask anyone who hasn't eaten for two or three days, and they'll tell you that. And because the flesh doesn't like to suffer, it yearns to be satisfied. But Deuteronomy tells that man does not live by bread alone, by everywhere that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So in order to prepare and train yourself for when you are tempted and your flesh desires nourishment, you have to train your flesh and discipline it. Just as Paul used boxing language and said he disciplined his body as a well-trained athlete. And the perfect example of this is Jesus on the cross. He was tortured and he was crucified. He could have given up. He could have said, Father, this is too much for me to bear. But he didn't. Why? Because he knew that the objective God had transcended his experience. And he didn't allow the temporality of situation and allow the flesh to take control of him. He allowed his flesh to suffer knowing that suffering would produce a righteous dividend in the end. Second preparation point, the lust of the eyes. This represents a psychological need of the mind. When Eve saw the fruit of the tree was a delight of the eyes, she had no biological need to eat the fruit because everything in the garden had already been provided for her. Which means she basically saw something that she desired more than what God had given to her. This now becomes a test of faith because you're now telling God, what you have already given me, I don't really like that too much. I'm going to look for something better. And the only way to strengthen one's faith and to communicate with the one who is to give you that faith is a life of prayer. When you humble yourself before the Lord and allow him to transform what is spiritual into the material. And look at how practical this is to our, very, our everyday lives. Many Christians will look at churches that are a delight to the eyes, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's a number of people, or things that look nice, which are very, very attractive to them. And this is a hidden temptation we, we very, very really think about in looking for outlets of holiness, which in actuality is a source of temptation in and of itself. The last preparation point, the pride of life. Something desirable to make one wise. This is a, a worship need. Being spiritual beings, we all have an internal need to worship something. And if that something is not God, we begin to idolize that object. The devil is perfectly happy if you use anything other than God, but the Bible tells us you ought to worship the Lord and the Word alone. And the antidote for that is praise and worship. Because if you're spending your time praising and worshiping God and consuming yourself with exalting Him, you'll have time for little other things. 
Now watch how simple this can get. How many hours a day or how many minutes a day do you praise and worship the Lord or think about God? Compare that to how many minutes a day or hours a day you spend on your cell phone. The follow-up question is now, are you worshiping your cell phone? Now, this is such a subtle point that many people miss. But if your answer is in the affirmative, that you are now spending more time on technology, are you being tempted by something else? Is your phone a delight to the eyes when you could be doing something in service to your Creator and Lord? Now, 1 Corinthians 10, 12 to 14 tells us, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. So at the end of the day, the defeat of temptation is not going to come easy. It's not going to be a quick turnaround. It's not going to be very, very rapid and quick. It may take you weeks, months, years to come out on the other side. But at the end of the day, the, the Lord, being good, will never allow you to be exposed to what you are not capable of conquering with his help. And his purpose in exposing you to such things is always to make you better in the end so you can therefore counsel and encourage others who are going through the same thing. God is in control of everything. So the escape route is going to be the one who already conquered temptation and sin, which is Jesus. We look towards he, Jesus, who already gave us the model of how to conquer temptation with the Word of God. Jesus never called down angels from heaven. He never bulked himself up with every spiritual piece of armor. He simply uttered three simple verses when he was tempted. And the Word is able to conquer any temptation you or I is ever exposed to. Now, throughout this entire process, the deceiver will try to mock us. He'll try to ridicule us. He'll try to tell us things that we're no good. That the temptation is better than us and we should submit and give ourselves an identity that says we're not worth it. And in that false identity, we then resort to the fact that this is what we do. We're sinners, allow me to be tempted, and you, the path continues. What we fail to realize is that Christ already died, not for the righteous, but for the sinners. It is he who came to seek and save those who are lost. And when you feel overburdened, when you feel down, when you feel as if you're unworthy, realize this, that it would be much better to be labeled a sinner and therefore be saved by the one who came to save sinners 
than to stand righteous with the accuser and be condemned to death. And it is only he who has come to save us from the depravity that will be able to give us eternal life and give us the tools needed to defeat temptation to finally conquer. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Dr. Sadafo. For more valuable information and resources, please visit chesadafo.com.